0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: I believe there is a universal filter, a universal story that we are all seeking to understand. And I call it the red thread it's It's a phrase borrowed from Scandinavian countries where they use it to say what's what is the thing that ties all this together what is the what's the theme what's the message what's the through line and we all want that, and in fact what's what's what I've discovered is that we all have that, so every organization, every person, every idea has this thing that makes it make sense, but how we make it make sense is fascinating to me, so the best way to think about it is, as as mad libs (laughs) remember that game Mm -hmm. where these pre-written stories but they have holes in them and when we are trying to make sense of a situation or we're trying to make sense of what someone's asking us to do or if we're in the position that i was in so often of how do i tell this story certain in such a way that moves people the pattern of that story that's universal and like a like a pre-written mad lib story But where it becomes unique and where the power is, not only for us to understand what our own red thread is, but as we're trying to explain other things to other people, is that what that leaves us to do is we don't have to figure out the whole story. All we have to do is figure out how do we fill in the blanks.
2: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who started movements, built thriving businesses, written best selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500 episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hey, it's Srini. So I just want to tell you how much I appreciate the fact that you're listening to the show. And if you found the podcast fascinating, instructive, inspiring, or maybe even heartwarming, if there's one person you could think of who would appreciate our show, a friend or a family member, take a moment and share the show with them, because good ideas are meant to be shared.
3: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
2: Salads generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me.
1: I am so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah,
2: it is really cool to have you here. You know, I came across your story by way of our uh, mutual friend, Clay Haybear, and then I had the opportunity to connect with you when I was preparing for my TEDx talk and was really kind of blown away by everything that you had done. But before we get into all of that, um, I want to start with a question based on having read your about page, which, by the way, is one of the coolest about pages that I've ever seen. Thank you so much. Uh, and so I want to start by asking, what birth order were you and what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career?
1: I would love to ask you, like, which one do you think I was? Uh, I was the younger sister. Okay. I was, I was number two. Uh-huh. And I, it, I think it had an impact on me in quite a number of ways. My sister's four years older. She's a screenwriter in L.A., and the distance between us was just enough for us to almost cross paths. And, and it became worse at a certain point because uh, I skipped first grade. I went from kindergarten to second grade, which meant that where once upon a time, I'm sure my parents had this, this blissful idea that we would be, we'd never be in the same school at the same time. All of a sudden, I'd screwed up that plan. And when she was a senior, I was a freshman and all all sorts of fun things ensued. Um, Mostly though, I think what that did was, It made it really clear, and I don't know that we fell into this consciously or not, that there were certain things that were her domain and there were certain things that were mine. So she, we were both really interested in the arts, but she was the she was the dramatist. You know, she was she was a I mean, as you can see now, she's a screenwriter, so she stuck with it. Uh, but I was the singer and she was the writer, and I was the visual artist. And what was interesting about that is that for much of my life, I figured that that was, that was it, that she was the one who was the talented writer. She was the storyteller. She was all of these things because it was the easiest way to avoid conflict in the house. Not because we were a very conflict ready house or just happened that way. But, uh, it was, it's been interesting over my your more adult life to, to start to see, I mean, the funniest discovery I made was to go back and look at my visual art from, from high school and realize it was complete crap. <laughs> I mean, it was, I mean, I don't, I am really not talented when it comes to visual art and yet I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. And I went back and read some of my writing from high school and I was like, Oh, that, that was actually pretty good. And You know, what's funny is that these days my sister and I are are fascinated by the fact that she and I do two sides of a very similar thing. And so even though we had this original thing where we split our domains, like, you know, you do this, I do this, and never the twain shall meet – what she and i both do now is figure out how to tell powerful stories in a very short period of time. You know, my domain is business speaking and TED talks and hers are is is TV. So she's a TV screenwriter, she's she's worked on a couple features as well, but for for both of us, we're talking about somewhere between twenty minutes for a half an hour show in her case and a TED talk in mine, to all the way up to ninety minutes to two hours, so a feature length movie for her and a keynote length, you know, an extended keynote keynote talk or workshop for me, and uh, who knows where that came from. But we're we're now we're still kind of finding our own domain, but around the same type of thing.
2: Wow. Okay. So many questions come from that. Uh, <laughs> You know, So you seem to have been raised by parents who encourage sort of blazing unconventional trails, just based on, on sort of what you've told me so far. Um, so having that having had that been the case, I'm curious what you would tell parents who are listening to this show who have young kids um, who are sort of in this evolutionary and growth phase of their lives.
4: Hmm.
1: Well, you're right that my parents were incredible models for unconventional paths. Uh, A lot of that is because my father was in the Navy, which may not be unconventional in and of itself. But my father is a is is a is a deeply pacifistic man. Uh, And he was a submariner. And so he went to Vietnam, but he was in the water off of Vietnam. So it's just always took very interesting ways. But for him, the Navy was his path to go to Stanford, where he went. And where he met my mother, who also went to Stanford. Uh, and she came from a, quite a rural area north of Seattle, the Skagit Valley in Washington State. But my mother got a Ph.D. in 1976. So think about that. So she comes from a, 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 rural, a rural town, incredibly poor upbringing, goes to Stanford, gets a Ph.D. in anthropology, where interestingly enough she was studying what's called the return and reunion phenomenon of navy families what happens to the to the relationships when the in that case at that time mostly men leave and you've got a woman the mother taking care of everything being mom and dad running the household making all these decisions and then all of a sudden dad comes back dad like i'm still the dad and then how does that how do those roles continue to shift so Just just her was an incredible model from that standpoint. The thing that each of them, though, have still in common and that they encouraged in both my sister and me was that there were only the barriers that you thought you saw. Like the, the only barriers that existed were the ones you chose to see. And... That was incredible, because there was really nothing that they ever said no to. When we said, well, I want to try this, they said, okay. I want to try this, okay. And that even extended to how we went, you know, how how they helped us think about college. Uh, their, their deal was for us that we could go anywhere, that they would do whatever they needed to from a financial standpoint for us to go anywhere we wanted. So, my sister, back to the theme of my sister, my sister goes to Stanford. So now there's three people in my immediate family have go to Stanford. So, of course, I'm like, I am totally not going to Stanford. Um, refused to even apply <laughs> but and I ended up at Boston University because I wanted to be I wanted to be in a city. Um, but what was interesting about that was from there, they said, you we, you we can do anything that you want for undergraduate or graduate school. That's completely up to you. And what's interesting about that is that you know, both my sister and I went on to graduate degrees. And both of them, both for both of us, they continue to be quite exploratory. But it really did come down to this why not kind of perspective that they had, uh, which is interesting because in certain ways my parents are also in certain ways very cautious but in other ways they're really quite not and i have to give them credit for that because they just came back from a trip to laos and the mekong river (laughs) so um which they consider a vacation and i would consider penitence for something um not from the location but the fact that they just really enjoy hard trips like that and i am i am made of much less stern stuff
2: You know, that that sense that the only obstacles that exist are the ones that you see or the ones that you make up. Um I am curious how you develop that. Because like I can understand that intellectually, uh but then you know I, I wonder at moments if I can act you know, why I struggle to apply something like that in my life.
1: You know, it's they were they were they are both very questioning folks so back to your question from before about what would I say to parents and it's something I try to do with my own children is they always sought to understand so they would ask questions so if if I didn't do well on something they would ask questions like did you do as well as you wanted to and I would have to answer that question did did you think you were capable of more did is that the best way that you saw to do it what other way would be appropriate have you thought about x or and 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 it was very much always we were both encouraged from my recollection to always be thoughtful about how we were thinking and that has been I would say their greatest gift to me because I mean it 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 did various points in my life careen over into neuroticism i've I've pulled myself back from that edge but the 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 encouragement to always be thoughtful about why you think the way that you do was incredibly helpful from for revealing assumptions and revealing those blocks and biases and logical loopholes that we're often not conscious of. And my parents are really good about questioning things and that's what has persisted. And so to, to take that to present day and say, how could somebody else think about how do you overcome the barriers that you think you see is to pull back and say, how am I defining this barrier? Where did it come from? Where are what are alternate explanations for this barrier that I see being in place? In other words, what do I how can I disconfirm what I believe to be true? And that ends up being a mantra that I use quite often for myself as disconfirm what you believe to be true, because only when you've eliminated all the other things then, then can you say, all right, now I think I'm looking at something fairly and accurately. And that, that willingness to be doubtful in being right, (laughs) um, it has, has been useful. Do I always succeed at it? Hell no. Um, but you know, there was, you know, one of the, one of the, one of the pieces of, of advice I would give to younger folks that w- worked for me and back in the days where I was managing people, teams of people, uh, would always, to, was to say, act, act as if you're wrong, even when you know you're right. Um, because that will keep your brain open to the fact that you may not in fact be right. So I I think it all comes down to questions because questions help you reveal assumptions about the truth.
2: So walk me through uh sort of the trajectory from, you know, this childhood of yours uh that clearly has been very interesting to how you ended up doing the work that you do today. Like how did you end up here at this point? What have been the significant inflection points?
1: <laughs> oh, lord. I, I you know, the funny <laughs> You know, I think actually the work that I do now it has been one massive attempt to justify what has an otherwise been a, a fairly circuitous path. <laughs> I can so, relate. So, um, yeah, the <laughs> so I so all right, so navy navy family. We moved five times before I was five. Uh, that had a lot to do, I think, with. W- self-sufficiency, uh, anybody that I know that grew up in a military family has an extraordinary sense of independence and self-sufficiency, um, and an ability to figure out how to connect quickly with whatever and wherever you might, might be or find yourself at the time. I, it was still at the same time, as I've mentioned, a, a very artistic upbringing. And so while I was very much involved in the arts, my opportunity, when I was, when it was, it came time to, choose where to go to college, what I wanted to study. It was, it was in the late eighties, early nineties, which was not a great time economically. And you know, in my, in my know it all teenage years, I was like, I can't believe my sister went to Stanford for a theater degree. And and I was like, I'm going to do something really, really practical. And I am going to get a degree in business because that way I can always be employed. <laughs> and so that's what I did. I, I was like, I'm going to study business, but I'm going to study marketing because that was for me, I, I considered it to be the, the most creative option out there. And I also considered it the path through which if I were employed and I had the sensitivity to creatives, that one of the things that I would often say is that I wanted to be in a position where I could make it easier for other people to do what it is that they love to do. And that, that realization came from the fact that, you know, I I had this choice about whether or not to pursue the arts because I sang and I acted and I just realized I didn't have the fire for it. And I was in school with people who clearly did, who were, who were and are working actors on Broadway and in t- on TV, uh, that, who make their living as concert singers and such. And I was just like, I, I just don't have that. But I know it's going to be a really hard life. So what can I do to make it easier? So I decided I wanted to be a museum director because of, of course, right, that's what everybody wants to grow up and be. Um, and what I discovered was that after the first year of college, I hated business school, um, like despised it. I was, I was all ready to, to, to quit after the first year and go to NYU and go back to the arts. And, and I had a college counselor, uh, an advisor who very kindly, uh, said to me, I think you're just bored. And I said, I think you're right. <laughs> and so she introduced me to the fact that BU had this other program, uh, that they have, uh, they called what they call the collaborative degree program. And that allowed me to actually get two degrees at the same time. So over four years at Boston university, I was able to get two degrees. And so what I was able to do was add something in that, that satisfied that art piece for me. So I went into American studies. I got an art history minor because I was still thinking I want to be in a museum director. And then when it came time to graduate, it was still not great uh, financially at that point. And so I was like, well, let's just stay in school. And so I started, I got my MBA. Uh, let's see when I was 23. So I went straight into business school from undergrad, which was unusual in and of itself. Um, because I found a program that would allow me to kind of combine both this practical and creative side uh, as a grad school program too. So I found this program at Southern Methodist University. Uh, that's the arts administration program, uh, where you, I could get a master's degree in arts administration at the same time I was getting an MBA. So here I go, outspoken, short, you know, short haired, Uh, liberal New Englander goes to Dallas. (laughs) Hilarity ensues, because Dallas and I don't really get along, like the whole (laughs) city and I don't really get along. Um, But it was a wonderful experience, because it helped give me a different perspective. Like, I, you know, I consciously went to a different area from where I grew up. Like, I didn't I grew up in Virginia beach and I wanted to go to new England because I wanted to experience that. And then when I decided to go to grad school, I wanted something really different. I wanted to, I I wanted to get a different perspective from somewhere else. And Dallas was definitely that. Um, and what happened when I was in Dallas, so I know this is a big old run up to everything, but what happened when I was in Dallas was I got a job, uh, working. Well, my first the, the job that I was doing for pocket money was working at banana Republic. So yeah, <laughs> whatever. Um, but in addition to that, I got a job working at a consulting company, um, which, which was my first experience in, in getting completely let off track by a big paycheck. And because they, they pay people just a stupid amount of money to be a consultant coming out of, of, of business school. And, So I did, I I was doing that part time. And when I graduated, I was like, oh, well, let me just make all my money up front and then I can help the artist later. And so I, so I went into management consulting for a year and a half. And in that time, I had a performance review where I was told, and I, this is so, I I wish this weren't true. I was told to do my hair and wear more lipstick. The work was fine. (laughs) But you know, the hair and the lipstick were not so fine. So it was at that point where I'm like, ah, to hell with it. There's not, an, you know, there's not enough money in the world to make this okay. And so I took a 50% pay cut. I got myself back to Boston and I started working for a museum, which is this crazy museum up in Salem, Massachusetts called the Peabody Essex Museum. The continu- the oldest continuously operating museum in uh, the United States actually. And So I I worked there and my job there was taking, was actually really useful because it it did combine this art business thing that I had, that I had been studying now for six years. So my job there was to serve as the liaison between the marketing departments and the fundraising department. And eventually that morphed into (laughs) into being the head of their exhibition planning, uh, mostly because I was annoyed that. We couldn't market these shows, these exhibits that were coming up because we didn't know what they were. And so eventually, apparently, I barked enough about that. They're like, you, fine. Fix it. I was like, okay, so I did, and uh, and so I worked there for a number of years doing that, and then after that, uh, when I decided, okay, I want to do something a little bit different. I'm not sure what I want to do. I want, you know, I don't think I want to do exhibitions the whole time. I had an opportunity to become the director of marketing communications at a local performing arts college called the Boston Conservatory, and it's one of very few institutions that combines music, dance and theater. So I was like, "Yay! I get to like do all the other arts that I did before. And my job for them was really to help them identify them for themselves, why people would want to get coming there. And that was a challenge because in Boston, there's there are two conservatories, just to be very confusing. There's the Boston Conservatory, which nobody knew about, and there was the New England Conservatory, which is what what most people think of. But there's also Berklee College of Music. There's also um, there's also a couple other independent music schools, and then there are all the music departments of all the colleges that are in the in the Boston area, which is some number that exceeds a hundred. And so, my goal leaving the Boston Conservatory was. I just want people, when I say I work at the Boston Conservatory, instead of saying the New England Conservatory, to say, oh, which one is that again? (laughs) Like, that was my goal. Um, So I worked there for four and a half years. It was a great place. And I feel like it was, you know, between that and the Peabody Essex Museum, you know, I could start to see this thread that I now see in all my work, which is I was always trying to figure out what was the core of that institution, or at in the case of the PBD Essex Museum, the core of what aspects of the collection or a particular show were most powerful? That held the greatest energy, that held the greatest potential for connecting with who those organizations were there to serve. So, with the PBD Essex Museum, it's about figuring out how do you own the fact that this is a crazy mishmash of a collection, but it's awesome. And, and it was a time where this, this museum, this regional museum, North of Boston wanted to be, you know, the museum of fine arts, you know, so, so think of Boston's equivalent to the, the Metropolitan Museum in New York. They wanted to be that on the North shore, but but they never are because I mean, if you have an association with Salem, Massachusetts, and just about everybody does, you know, like if I say Salem, Massachusetts, is there something that pops into mind? For most people, (laughs) you got it. It's the witches. So Salem like owns its witches, man. I mean, there are like there is there's there's a statue, a horrible one, by the way, of of um, Samantha from Bewitched. Uh, You know, there's there's like 18 witch museums. And to confuse it even further, the PBDS Museum has all of the historical trial documents from the Salem witch trials. But you know, there was a time where the museum really wanted to suppress that because they wanted to be the MFA at the North Shore. But really, once they started to rotate around this idea of we have a story, we have this crazy collection, and it is different and meaningful to people, not only from here, but for people who want to come to New England and experience everything that New England has been, there's honestly no better place than this crazy mishmash of a collection at the Peabody Essex museum, because it is that it's exactly that. And the same thing that was true at the Boston conservatory. So I often (laughs) will tell this story about when I first worked there, one of my responsibilities while I was there was to do all the, all the admissions materials. So the, the, the materials that students would ask for and get to decide they wanted to come here uh, to come to the, to come to the conservatory. And the, the view book, which is the main printed piece at the time that did that There was this picture of a theater on the cover, the inside of a theater. Now, that makes sense. It's a performing arts college. You want people to be like, oh, yeah, I want to be on stage. Uh, But there was a problem with this picture. The picture was not from the conservatory's theater. It didn't – the picture, like, didn't belong – like that theater didn't belong to the Boston Conservatory, so people would come and they'd be, they'd be like, Well, where's that theater?" you know after seeing our like pretty sketch like built in nineteen forty two wooden seat chip stuff like cinder block walls, and they'd be like, "Where's the one on the picture?" and we'd be like, "It's not there um so the first thing I did was like, well, can let's let's figure out what do we need to do here that people actually want and what we what I ended up doing was saying. Well, actually what I did was I asked people like, why, why would you do that? Why, why would you, why did someone make this decision to put some other theater on the cover? And they said, well, because our theater isn't very nice. I was like, okay, but it is the theater that you have. And they said, yeah, but it's expensive to come here. And we don't want people to get scared off at the front. And I'm like, but all right, let's think about this. Think about you, you're a parent and you've got a kid that wants to be a dancer or, or an orchestral musician or a musical theater actor, so much that they are willing to do only that for four years. As a parent, what is your chief concern? Like, how is this child going to pay the bills, right? Mm-hmm. How do I, uh, like, I've got an option to send this kid to like a, a liberal arts school or a very specialized performing arts college. What's what's my concern? Is this kid going to be able to work? So what I started to say was, well, what if if and what was interesting the important thing to know is that the the alumna, alumni of the Boston Conservatory are everywhere and they are successful working musicians. They're um it, I mean, the ones you've heard of <laughs> um you can you can smile and, and laugh a little bit, but like Constantine Maroulis, who like nearly won American Idol and then Cat McPhee, who also did and other folks, but people that you would see on Broadway and know uh, came from the Boston Conservatory. So we, we had a history of working folks. And the point I made was, listen, if this is the result that they, these that these kids can work. Even when our theater looks like that, or there are poles in the middle of our dance studios, which there were, and they can still be successful, what do you think prepares your kids, prospective parents of these kids, better? A pristine, protected environment, or one that is that mimics now the conditions that they're most likely to face when they go out into the world? And so we repositioned everything around this idea of this is for working. Our goal is to create working students and to create the resilience and the resourcefulness and to obviously to, to, to develop and nurture that talent for your kids to be able to work. And that ended up being remarkably successful. And by the way, it ended up being a good baseline for that for which to raise money too, because you're like, but now, imagine how much even better it would be if they didn't have to dance around poles um and not the stripper pole kind of, I mean, like literally <laughs> like support beam pole. Uh, so from from there, kind of taking those lessons, I was like, well, maybe I've got something here in figuring out how to make people understand a fairly complicated, kind of a challenging idea. At the time too, I was trying to decide, well, do I want to go out on my own? Do I want to do more in you know, this this what's called institutional advancement in nonprofits, the, the the blend of marketing development. And I said, well, let's 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 learn how to raise money a bit better. And so I got a job working at Harvard Medical School, which this is where the first places where it's like, okay, museum made sense, Boston Conservatory made sense medical school does not make sense. <laughs> but it does make sense in the case that I was really interested at that point about how do you help bridge the gap between something that needs to happen, raise raise money so that we can solve some of the most pressing issues of science and health that are out there, and what is currently happening, which is people don't understand why they would possibly need to give money to Harvard, which has enough money to make it equivalent to the 18th largest country in the world. And so I took that challenge on for 3 years, which is how do we how do I a explain the work of the medical school? How do I explain basic science? And and what I mean by basic science is basic science is the thing that happens and has to happen before you can figure out the cure for things. It's the thing that says why does this molecule behave this way? It's the thing that says why don't we know this thing yet and and these scientists do it without knowing what the answer is and so at medical school i was that was my job was to figure out why would people give and why did the scientists do their work and to create the the gap between that and to bridge the gap between that and that's the first place i started to notice that there were patterns to those connections that that it ended up being much more powerful to talk to our donors or the equivalent of our market based on why they gave rather than on how much they gave. And this started to lay in this idea for me that mindset is way more important than any market as we might typically think of it. Because the person who gives money to the, to Harvard medical school, who is baffled by these unanswered questions about science and about why don't we know why certain diseases happen. If they give money at the $20 level, they have much more in common with somebody who is also interested in that question, but gives 20 million than two $20 million donors have in common with each other. And so I really want to start figuring out what's, what's going on there. So after the medical school, I said, I want to see I want to see how this pattern manifests across more kinds of institutions. So I became a brand strategist for three years at a wonderful firm here in Boston called Samets Blackstone Associates that that focuses primarily on arts and cultural institutions and nonprofits. And so I was able to see that and see how that pattern developed over time and understand how to how do you find that core of a message at a high level uh, at the same time, I was this is now 2009. So this is when social started to hit. And so I I took that on as a challenge and figured out, well, how do we take this big message and use these social channels to promote? It? In other words, how do I take this big message and make it day to day? And <clears throat> a few years after I'd figured kind of figured out what I wanted to figure out there. And then I moved to an advertising agency where I built out the social digital content practice for for-profit clients. Cause now I figured out like, okay, I got the whole nonprofit thing. Um, how is it different for for-profit? And I was like, ah, oh, you know what? It's not that different. But what I was realizing that, you know, now that I had this idea, I'm like, okay, I, I have a sense of how to find what's powerful about an organization or an idea. I have a sense of how to connect that to what people are interested in from, you know, what, you know who we want to benefit from that idea. I have a sense now of how to articulate that idea at a, both a high level and at a detailed level. I know it for nonprofits. I want to understand it for for-profit institutions. And so, at the at at the agency, Allen and Garretson, um, that's what I was doing. I built out their social and digital content practice, um, and found that missing in all of that was this thing that happened in between, which was how do you bridge between what we want people to know and what we what they do know? And ultimately, what I found the answer to that came in something I had been doing all along in parallel to all of these jobs, which was I was a Weight Watchers leader. Didn't see that coming. Um, but uh, 18 years ago now, I weighed 50 pounds more than I do, and I started to become a Weight Watchers leader. And so... What that did for me was it took everything that I was that I was taught theoretically in school that was that applied at a market level in all those jobs. And it gave me a lab to test how does it actually work, though, one on one with people, because my job as a Weight Watchers leader was for 30 minutes at a time. Up to five times a week for 13 years, my job was to figure out how do I convince this group of people to do something that's hard and difficult, but helps them get something that they want. Mm-hmm. And so eventually, I kept focusing down, and then I realized the thing I most love to do is was around that one one-on-one that got one to many. And yeah, I had the opportunity to become the executive producer of TEDx Cambridge uh, three and a half years ago. Uh, grabbed at that and started to find that the most powerful things that i could offer were the lessons i learned at weight watchers informed by the market sensibility of everything else i'd done and that's the really long version of the story
0: <laughs> many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care
3: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. As
0: creators, we're always on the move, whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop. We're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips.
2: Okay. So I want to spend the remainder of our time, which we have about 20 minutes. talking about something that you said at the very beginning of the conversation, which kind of, I think, ties us all together. You know, you've kind of looked, we've looked at it at a very micro level, and I want to take it back and look at it at a macro level. Um, you said a phrase, telling powerful stories in a short amount of time, which, you know, in my mind is probably what the title of the interview is going to be. So mm. I'm curious if we could look at sort of a framework for how that actually happens um, in our own lives and in our, in our own work.
1: Oh, yes, absolutely. So the 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 summation <laughs> of all of that stuff was m- my reverse engineering off of what I had seen to find that there, in fact, I believe there is a universal filter, a universal story that we are all seeking to understand. And I call it the red thread it's It's a phrase borrowed from Scandinavian countries where they used it to say what's what is the thing that ties all this together what is the what's the theme what's the message what's the through line And we all want that, and in fact what's what's what I've discovered is that we all have that, so every organization, every person, every idea has this thing that makes it make sense, but how we make it make sense is fascinating to me, so the best way to think about it is, as as mad libs <laughs> remember that game mm-hmm. where these pre-written stories but they have holes in them and when we are trying to make sense of a situation or we're trying to make sense of what someone's asking us to do or if we're in the position that i was in so often of how do i tell this story in, sur- in such a way that moves people the pattern of that story that's universal and like a like a pre-written mad lib story but where it becomes unique and where the power is, not only for us to understand what our own red thread is, but as we're trying to explain other things to other people, is that what that leaves us to do is we don't have to figure out the whole story. All we have to do is figure out how do we fill in the blanks? How do we personally fill in the blanks? Now, the core of this red thread revolves around three things. And they are two of them are expected and one of them is not. I think the the, the first thing is, what is the thing that I want you to do differently? You know, and if I'm I'm in a marketing position or if I'm trying to tell a story, like this is kind of like, here's the thing that I want you to have, you know, to change your opinion where afterwards. So, you know, Boston Conservatory, I want you to send your kids here. Harvard Medical School, I, I, give us money. Um, that's great, except that on its own, that's not enough because anybody who has ever been hard sold anything knows that, It doesn't matter how great your solution might be. If I don't understand why I need it, then it's not going to be useful. So the first piece is that solution. The second piece is the why you need it, which is the problem. And that's, again, not rocket science. But the thing that I figured out by looking and working with people and trying to tell these stories in a short amount of time so often was that the thing that was missing between – that there was something missing between the two. And the thing that was missing between the two was – for lack of any better word an idea and here's what i mean by that the example i often give is you know so if if y- you walk into a doctor's office and your doctor as soon as you walk in says so hey when do you want to schedule surgery like that's the equivalent of only presenting the solution to something right so we we need the other questions answered so even if she or he says you have a spot on your back you need surgery. Aha, you still have a question. What kind of spot? Why is surgery the right answer? And that missing link was the thing I got obsessed with starting to figure out. Um, And so this idea is this thing that simultaneously explains why the problem is such a problem and why the solution that you're recommending is a solution that's required. And so this, this trio of problem, idea, change is enormously powerful. And it sits at the core, if I'm working with people on how to build a talk around that, then there's a couple extra things. You have to identify the goal that the problem is in the way of, and oftentimes you have to describe what the actions are that make the change. But this idea of problem, idea, change, symptom, diagnosis, solution is the core of everything. And so if you're a person, you're like, well, what's my red thread? The way that I suggest people do this is to think to yourself, identify each of those three things, identify yourself. What what's the? what are the problems that I'm drawn to solve? So for me, I solve problems about. Uh, energy being misdirected or misapplied, right? So if I now if I go back and I look at all the things that I did, I was always looking for where's where's the potential power here? And why is there a gap between what what some what I can clearly see in something is great? And why is it not happening? Then the second question to ask yourself is what is the idea? What is the reason why I think that idea is is such a problem. And this for a person is going to come down to what are your core values and beliefs? What are the core realizations that you have? And for me, that's a couple. One is that I believe everybody already has everything that they need. It actually comes from a Weight Watcher tenant, which was you have all the resources that you need. And then add to that a fascinating piece of science that I got from one of my clients once upon a time who was of all things an electric equipment manufacturer uh who said hey tamsin do you know the difference between energy and power and he of course was talking about the electrical engineering differences between energy and power but as soon as he said that i'm like okay those are two of my favorite words tell me more he said power is energy sustained over time and i said that's it like that That is that if I had to say one thing that summarized my entire belief system is that is that power comes from sustaining energy over time, which means that if I now ask the third question, which is what is the skill set? What are the approaches that I always bring to bear? It explains why I'm obsessed with frameworks. I'm obsessed with processes. I'm obsessed with models, because if I can think about better ways to think, see, this goes all the way back to what my parents taught me. Mm -hmm. Then I can get to that power more quickly without wasting energy and I can accomplish all the things that I want or need to accomplish or I can help someone else do that. So those three things, what are the problems I'm drawn to solve? What are the why? What's the idea? What are the ideas plural behind it? And then finally, what are those solutions, those skill sets that I bring to bear to solve those problems? You find those Then it becomes easy to go back to our mutual friend clay bear to summarize summarize that red thread and so i can you know the way that i summarize what i do as i say i help people find and speak about the power of their ideas and that's it because for me it's about finding it's about it's about amplifying that power and it's about using speech to do it talking or messaging to do it even if it's written because i found that is the fastest path towards change And that, by the way, was taught to me by Weight Watchers, the fastest (laughs) path to fate. Yeah, the the fact, you know what, just talk to somebody. That's the easiest way to get something to happen.
2: Wow. So I'm curious, is this something that can be applied to both our our personal and professional lives? And I'm more interested in how it applies in our personal lives, actually, because the professional part I get having done a little bit of work with you.
1: Yeah, the personally, absolutely. So. I, I said at the beginning that, that my life's work, I think, was a giant attempt to explain my own life. Um, <laughs> but where it's where it's helpful is that here's what happens when you identify these core pieces of your red thread. This is the most important thing, I think, when it comes to understanding this, is there, that you have this red thread shows up in different ways. You can wrap it around things differently. And so uh, so, Clay Bear, our ritual friend, has his perfect introduction, which is usually six or seven words of how you describe yourself. And I always feel like I am like, I always feel bad because I'm like, I've got eight. And, and, but that actually comes from understanding this red thread. And here's what I mean if you have your red thread, you understand, okay, I'm always looking for these kinds of problems and I, I bring these solutions to bear because of this. It becomes very easy in any given situation for you to say, okay how can I describe myself most powerfully for the situation I'm in right now? So if I'm talking to potential speakers who say, well, what do you do? I say, I help I help you figure out what your next big idea should be, because that's what's going to be relevant to them. If I'm talking to a broad group of marketers, I can say, I help people in organizations find and tell their story, because that's what marketing is going to want to do. But there's it's still rooted in the same thing. I'm just able to wrap those things differently around each other. I mean, if I'm feeling metaphorical, I can say I'm a map maker for meaning. Um, I help people turn energy into power. They're all the same thing. What it means, though, is that I can have this really strong, stable base. Anybody can have this really strong, stable understanding of why, you know, what you do and why and how all linked together. And that is flexible enough for you to be able to, to make the most of that red thread in any situation that you're in. So I find that it's incredibly useful when you are uh, in a couple situations. One, where people say, well, you know, Oh, tell me about yourself. Uh, that's one where instantly you can say, okay, given the other things, what's the best way for me to describe my red thread to somebody in this moment? I think it's very helpful when you are trying to figure out, okay, I've been presented a new situation. Here's this new thing. Um, I saw this come to bear with the election that happened in the fall where I saw a lot of cause shaming, what I would call cause shaming around people were like, Oh, well, you're not doing enough, whatever side you're on. You know, you're not, you're not supporting enough. You're not calling enough. You're not protesting enough. You're not doing it. But what it allows people to do is say, well wait a minute. I'm really good at helping people figure out if I'm talking about myself, fi- pe- helping people figure out what's the most powerful way to talk about what they're trying to do. So, and I'm not I'm not a caller. That's not my that's not where my red thread lies, but I can help people be more powerful in what they say when they do call. And so, it helps you in this moment where you're like, how do I handle this situation? Somebody's just dropped a project on my desk to say, okay, If I'm using my own, I can say, well, where's, it helps me focus my attention more quickly. Where are the gaps in energy here? Where is the energy? Why isn't it being maximized? How can we sustain it? Where are the, what's the fastest way to get that, that power articulated? Where's the most useful way to do it? What's the, what's going to be the technique or the approach that I can give to this particular uh, company or person or environment in order to figure that out? And so the red thread really comes down to giving you a clean, clear sense of the filter that you use to make meaning of the world. And the reason why that's so important is that meaning drives change. If you want to understand how to manage the change that you're facing or how to create it, Or even just how to talk about it, you have to understand what it means first. You have to understand what it means to you, and you have to understand what it's going to mean potentially to other people. And what's fascinating about this universal pattern of the red thread and how we listen for this mad lib of meaning is that if you can explain what something means to you using those same components, then you get to transfer that meaning from one person to the other with the little loss of. Meaning of energy, back to my metaphor, as possible, and I think that's a really powerful tool for everyone to have.
2: Wow, um, I can see now why Clay recommended you. This has been oh, mind-blowingly cool. Um, <laughs> one of my favorite conversations I've had uh, over the course of last year. This has really, really been insightful and and powerful. So I have one final question, which is how we finish all our interviews at the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: consonance is the word that I would come to um so consonance is not like a b c d (laughs) consonance is the opposite of dissonance so dissonance is we know it we can feel it when something doesn't sound right doesn't feel right it's both a physical property and when you can see when you can feel and consonance is the exact opposite and it's best illustrated by of, of, of physics. So one thing I never mentioned was that I kind of forgot to study science. I love science. So working at the medical school was amazing. But there's this thing that happens uh, with two tuning forks. And if you have a tuning fork, metal metal Y that's tuned to a certain note, um, if you hit it, it, it makes a sound. And it's one you can't really hear unless you put on something that resonates. And a lot of times when people think about How do I connect? How do I be unmistakable with somebody? They're like, I just need to figure out, I need to find find the right box for me to stick my tuning fork on. And I say, no, 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 You're, you're missing half of the picture there because that combination of tuning fork and box, that's just you. You have to find something that resonates really strongly for yourself. You have to find the right way for something to really come through for you. And then there's another tuning fork, there's another box, and that's the people that you're talking to. And, but there's this amazing thing that happens when, if you, if you were to hit that first tuning fork, yours, and it sounds a note, if you, and if those two tuning forks are perfectly in tune with each other, and let's say like my tuning fork is tuned to A, and your tuning fork is tuned to A, if I hit mine and then stop it, yours rings the same note. It's amazing. You can look it up. It's it's sympathetic um, It's sympathetic frequency. It's the same thing that makes that thing in your car rattle only when you hit a certain speed, um, which is annoying then. But this idea of consonance of being perfectly in tune, perfectly in tune with who you are, how you articulate to the world, and having who you are and what you say also be tuned to the people that you're talking to, when you see that, that's unmistakable and the best way to get there quickly is to understand that red thread because it is who you are it is how you make meaning of the world and because it also follows the pattern of how other make people make meaning it's the fastest easiest way for you to get what your note over to them so consonance is what makes people unmistakable
2: Well, that has to be one of my favorite answers I've ever heard to that question. And I think it makes for a fitting end to our conversation. Uh, Where can people learn more about you?
1: It's all at TamsinWebster.com. I am the only one, so it's easy. Awesome.
2: (laughs) And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming?